and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say. My name's Adrian Goldberg and I'm the editor of the Byline Times podcast and this is my personal selection of the choicest morsels from our audio output which started in July. It's intended to be a celebration of our honest and fearless journalism. If you are a regular listener, well apologies in advance if your favourite snippet has been left out. And if you're new to the Byline Times, well this is a little flavour of what we're about. Every episode is available to listen to in full on your usual podcast platform. We're going to hear from former Aussie Prime Minister Kevin Rudd about the kind of media tycoon who typifies what we're not about. Murdoch's a thug. Murdoch is an absolute thug. And he's a bully. And he trains his editors to become bullies and thugs. We'll be celebrating Sam Bright's brilliant investigative work for the Byline Times about the PPE procurement scandal, which led to questions being raised in Parliament by the Brent MP Dawn Butler. At the end of the day, this is our government and, you know, we have a democracy, so you can't just give money, millions of pounds to your mates and not expect people to ask questions. And there'll be reflections on Brexit, including the role unwittingly played by a popular BBC sitcom. At the beginning of Dad's Army, there's this moment where the Nazi swastika arrows push the little Union Jack back across the English Channel and then corner it and push in on it and pincer it out, uh, giving the impression that Britain really was just protected by Captain Mannering and and his fellow sort of comedy stock characters. All that to come. First, just a reminder that the Byline Times isn't owned by a media tycoon or an oligarch. We rely on people like you to fund us. If you take out a subscription to our monthly newspaper, the Byline Times, at just £36 a year, you'll be supporting fearless journalism that challenges the abuses of money and power. Byline Times co-founder Peter Jukes explained in our first podcast in July how live-tweeting the phone-hacking trials led him to a midlife career change. Well, I moved from drama. I was a dramatist for a quarter of a century doing very heavily research-based dramas, you know, about undercover cops, about Bosnia and things like that. And some reason later on in my life, uh, I got involved in journalism. I knew a lot of journalists and I ended up live-tweeting the phone-hacking trial, writing a book about Murdoch. And kind of got into crowdfunded journalism. I, I wasn't a journalist. Nobody would pay me. But suddenly I trained as one and people would pay me to um, provide, in a way, impartial information, especially over sort of controversial issues like Rupert Murdoch. Because I wasn't the BBC. I wasn't the Guardian. But I wasn't, obviously, the Times or News of the World. And actually, it was much more dramatic than doing drama. It was great fun. And, and unlike TV drama and stage drama, you actually, as a journalist, you have a lot more interaction with the audience. Sometimes very bad interaction. You get people sort of trolling you and legal threats. But it actually was much more like drama than drama itself. And out of that, I helped uh, advise a crowdfunding site set up uh, in 2015 called Byline.com, which is crowdfunding journalism, kind of slightly inspired by mine and other people's experience. And then out of that, we did a festival. And then we realized, well, you know, because we're quite sort of investigative, Newspapers don't want to, you know, a bit wary of us. They won't sponsor the festival. So why don't we create a paper that will sponsor the festival? And and we did realize, I mean, after seven, eight years now, I've been a, a journalist. Citizen journalism has an important place in people's 
everybody, uh, journalism comes from the idea of a journal, a diary. You know, at one point in our life, we all might be citizen journalists. But journalism itself as a profession, the dedication, the caution, the sort of research needed, needed support. And so I think the idea of a newspaper was just something, you know, with a masthead, a collective endeavor that had, was really hard on the facts, was well edited, but also sort of quite diverse. That we needed to get away from just the individual byline and create a collective edifice. And that's where we are. Peter Jukes. And so the Byline Times was born with a mission to challenge the narratives of the mainstream media, especially newspapers, which, despite years of declining sales, continue to set the news agenda for TV and radio. Rupert Murdoch, who's now defunct News of the World, was at the heart of the phone hacking scandal, still owns The Sun, The Times and The Sunday Times, which all bear the hallmark of his right-wing free market politics. His media empire also includes Talk Radio, Times Radio, Talk Sport and Murdoch now has a 24-hour TV news channel in his sights as well. He also has significant interests in Europe and the United States. In his native Australia, former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd has set up a parliamentary petition which has attracted a record-breaking half a million signatures calling for a royal commission to investigate ways of curbing Murdoch's influence. I put to Mr Rudd criticism of him in the Murdoch press that he was thin-skinned. That's just because he's not used to people fighting back. Seriously. I mean, Murdoch's a thug. Murdoch is an absolute thug. And he's a bully. And he trains these editors to become bullies and thugs. You've seen that uh, in the three-part BBC series. That model uh, he perfected first in his Australian papers. He then took it to the UK whopping plus the sun then later the times and then of course you've seen it in the new york post and most spectacularly through the performance at, at fox in the united states so i don't know the case in the uk but in australia what i've certainly picked up in my long years in public office public life now is that people are frightened of him they're fearful and there's one guy a former editor working for Murdoch who said memorably in the BBC series, having the Murdoch press descend on you is like having an entire division of the SS unleashed on you when they want to take you out. And that's what it's like. And guess what? People in politics, left and right, people in business, people in academia, people in other institutions, learn very quickly that the best way to avoid having your character shredded into a thousand pieces on the front page of the paper is to give Murdoch a very wide berth indeed and not to ever criticise. So when Murdoch says, I'm thin-skinned, for God's sake, you should see what happens to anyone in this country if they raise a question about the Murdoch media monopoly. It's like being put before a firing squad with rusty bullets every morning. Former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd in an exclusive interview with the Byline Times podcast. Now, the biggest story of 2020 was, of course, the coronavirus pandemic. And never mind the traditional media, here there are hard questions to answer for many of the social media platforms owned by US corporations. You won't have to look too far on Facebook or Twitter to find propagandists for the idea that coronavirus is a scamdemic or a plandemic or just a plain old hoax despite a global death toll in excess of 1.7 million people. After a rally in Trafalgar Square, 
Byline Times editor Hardeep Matharu challenged one of the leading voices in the scandemic movement. So now when I liken this to Auschwitz and the cattle trucks, you tell me the difference because the only time in history when I can find where the nurses and the doctors were allowed to end people's lives was the nurses of the Third Reich, where they took the disabled, the elderly, the epileptics, the children that were disabled. They took them into these places, institutions. They removed food, water. They gave them cocktails of drugs to kill them. The nurses of the Third Reich are here today, and we now have the nurses and doctors. But where, where is the, the evidence for what you're saying, Kate? around you likening this to Auschwitz and the Holocaust, which I think a lot of a lot of people will find deeply offensive. Where is the I evidence? I don't care if they find it offensive. I find it offensive that our elderly have been murdered in care homes. Stop being a special snowflake and saying you're offended. They are killing our elderly, our most vulnerable. Kate Shemirani, being interviewed by Byline Times editor Hardeep Matharu on Byline TV. I asked Hardeep who stood to gain from peddling these obscure and sometimes extreme and distasteful theories about coronavirus. I think on a fundamental level, it benefits and comforts people who feel that the world is increasingly an unsettled, uncertain and scary place. In terms of who then capitalises on that, it's populists and it's demagogues and it's organisations that want to harness the fact that people no longer have trust in the truth and they're doubtful of evidence and science. People who want to sort of use that to their own ends, I think, is the main one. I think it also benefits all those who want to expose the vulnerability of, of democracy, I guess. What we've learned in recent years in particular is that democracy is not simply the end of history and an end point. It's something that has to be nurtured and worked on. It can't be taken for granted. We must never be complacent about the freedoms we have and the societies we live in, in liberal democracies. I think democracy by its nature, which is about plurality, is therefore vulnerable and susceptible to forces that want to undermine it. But I think if you become so complacent with it, you might not see that. And Adrian, we talked about for some people it is comforting to have some sort of explanation, whether it's QAnon or scandemic uh, movement as to uh, the crises that are going on. And I think the distrust I was talking about that has obviously festered and potentially is contributing to people looking for these alternative explanations, it's a distrust which also breeds disengagement. And I think disengagement is is very dangerous. Uh, we, you know... The people who believe that the coronavirus is is potentially a hoax or or is being cooked up to a certain degree, they are still our fellow citizens. We live in the same society, the same democracy. But if enough people start to disengage, distrust, and start to turn to alternative sources of faith, essentially, which is what I think it is, then that's a real problem. And the more people disengage, the more they then become ripe for, as I said, populists and, and demagogues to start moving in and offering them 
alternative narratives, which is what they're already sort of the path they're already going down. Hadith Matharu. It's not only populists and demagogues who stood to gain from the coronavirus, though. So did friends of the government. And no one did more to expose the scandal around PPE procurement than Byline Time staff writer Sam Bright. When the pandemic broke, PPE, personal protective equipment, was suddenly in huge demand by hospitals, care homes and so on. But Sam revealed that many firms cashing in on government contracts had no prior expertise in the area. One PPE supplier normally provides hotel carpeting, another search engine optimization. Some of the fortunate contractors were closely linked to ministers and MPs. Despite pushback by the government, the byline time stories were validated by a National Audit Office report in November, which identified that £10 billion worth of PPE contracts had been awarded to companies without any competition, thanks to a fast-track scheme which gave priority to firms recommended by those in the Cabinet, MPs, members of the House of Lords and so on. In a moment, we'll hear from Dawn Butler, the Brent MP who raised questions about this in Parliament. But first, Sam Bright himself. One of the things that was most surprising and damning, I thought, was that £1.5 billion worth of deals was awarded before the government even got its due diligence sorted out, which meant that millions of pounds worth of contracts were awarded to companies that were later when the government set up its due diligence process, flagged on the system as red, as in they shouldn't really be given contracts. I mean, that is just an appalling situation, especially considering the the Department of Health last year alone spent £1.1 billion on procurement deals. The sums of money are vast. And yeah, it's it's good that we've had official confirmation about the things that we've been banging on about for months. And there are charges of cronyism hanging around the Johnson government. They're often batted back by government supporters. But when you look at this fast track system for people who were known to ministers and members of the House of Lords as well and and government officials, it does suggest that certainly at the start of the coronavirus crisis, if you knew somebody in government, you had a greater chance of getting a, a PPE contract. Yeah, it says that quite clearly and explicitly. So the first thing to say is that you had about a one in 10 chance of winning a contract if you were put through what was called the high priority lane. So 50 out of 500 companies that were put through this lane who knew ministers, MPs, etc. got a contract. But if you went through the normal lane, only 100 out of 15,000 companies were awarded contracts in that lane. So despite the fact that procurement is supposed to be a level playing field between all the suppliers, you can see through this report that it really it really wasn't. But not only this, the report lays out that there were these 50 companies out of 500 that went through the high priority lane. But the government didn't actually record the source of half of these companies. So it didn't record to then report to the National Audit Office which minister, which MP, which official had referred the company to the government, which essentially meant that the National Audit Office couldn't check the receipts. At the end of the day, this is our government and, you know, we have a democracy, so you can't just give money 
millions of pounds to your mates and not expect people to ask questions is the first thing. The second thing is, even if you are giving contracts to people who you know, they have to be able to deliver a job. Otherwise, that is something completely different than awarding a contract to somebody. That is the corruption that we talk about in other countries. So there isn't really an excuse not to having due diligence and not ensuring that the organizations and the companies that were awarded contracts could deliver. And that is the big thing. I I don't mind if you're going to give a contract to somebody who you know. It might not pass the smell test, but if they delivered in time, on budget, what we needed, then that's a different story. We don't even know if the majority of these companies actually delivered. I mean, we know that they were, according to the NAO, we know that three contracts were ended. We know there's one still ongoing, but we don't know if all the other companies delivered. We don't know what was entailed in the contract. We don't know how many masks were were required, how many were contracted to be supplied, how many were supplied. We still haven't got those details. That's really important. Dawn Butler, the MP for Brent, and before that, Sam Bright on the PPE scandal, which he did so much to uncover. And you can read more from Sam in the year ahead at Byline Times. Now, Sweden has taken a very different approach to the pandemic to the UK, resisting lockdowns, allowing bars, restaurants, gyms and many schools to remain open, an approach pioneered by controversial public health official Anders Tegnell. There's scant evidence that Sweden has fared any better economically than its Nordic neighbours, Denmark, Finland and Norway, who all followed a more conventional approach. And Sweden's Covid death toll is four times greater than all those countries combined. Despite that, Sweden's approach has had its champions in the UK media. Julia Hartley Brewer on Murdoch's talk radio, for example, and Toby Young, to mention just two. Maybe they should listen to Suzanne Matiutsi, whose mother Ulla, like many older people in Sweden, was denied hospital treatment when she displayed possible COVID symptoms. You know, in Stockholm, they built a military tent. So they have 500 beds and every bed had oxygen, but they never used that, that hospital for the people. They could have sent my mother to that. She didn't get the real care. It's still going on. So many people are dying in Sweden. I don't know what's going on, but something is wrong in Sweden. Why are so many people dying now? Over 8,000, and they say the most are elderly, old people. They don't get help. If she was dying, she, we would would be with her and hold her hand, but we we wasn't there. I think it, this is so wrong. They have, it's, we are suffering from, we, we have, it's a big sadness for all of us. It's hard because we all sister feels like she was lying in a room all alone 
and no one and couldn't breathe and we couldn't be there with her. It is horrible. And something we can carry the whole life with us is anxiety. It's sad. Oh, so, so sad. We have featured the Swedish experience of COVID twice on the Byline Times podcast in 2020 and will definitely return to it in 2021. I'm Adrian Goldberg, the editor of the Byline Times podcast, and you're listening to my pick of the year. Just a reminder that the Byline Times is funded not by tycoons or media moguls, but by people like you. A subscription to our monthly newspaper, The Byline Times, costs just £36 a year. Go to bylinetimes.com for more information. Now, after coronavirus, the biggest story of the year has surely been Brexit, and Byline Times editor Hardeep Matharu brought a personal story to the debate, one which contradicted some of the stereotypes around the subject. Her parents, a dad from Kenya, a mother from India, both voted leave, despite, or perhaps because, they grew up in the former British Empire. My parents voted to leave the EU because of what I have described and written about, is this very interesting love-hate relationship with, with Britain. So my dad grew up in British Kenya. He liked the fact that he learnt English and that he could listen to BBC Radio 4, that he read Time magazine. He actually liked his life there. Um, his, his family, were in, they were Indians yeah, from India who were brought to Kenya to build the railways there. And so my dad grew up there. He liked it. I mean, he'd pass, you know, beautiful you know, safari on the way to school, you know, have days off in Mombasa. It's Brit- you know, he really loved it. But both him and my mother came to this country, saw it as the mother country, you know, they they felt British, they feel British, they're proud to be British. And I think that was that was why that dynamic existed. They voted for Brexit, because they don't they don't identify as European, they don't see any real links between Europe and Britain, they feel British, they like, in, in many respects, what Britain has given to them. But at the same time, there's another dynamic playing out, which is, so growing up, I was aware of the empire because I would be told about the Amritsar massacre at Jallianwalabad in the Punjab in India and other atrocities that occurred and colonial, the violence, the inherent violence of colonialization or, or even the colour bar that my dad, as he described it as a colour bar, had to, had to put up with in Kenya. So I was always informed by my parents that you know, the British being in India or Kenya was not just a positive thing, that there were things that were really wrong about that. And in that way, my parents also therefore felt that Britain owes people like them its allegiance, not necessarily people who are from Europe, um, but that there's something about having been, you know, sub- subjects of the empire, if you like, that meant that that should be recognised in a deeper way than European migrants who were coming. And so it was very complex. You know, on one hand, they, they, love, they, love the, they love Britain and they feel very British, but they also feel it did some things that were very wrong. And all of that as a whole, I think, helps to explain what's going on. And of course, they're not going around each day, my parents thinking about these things, you know, thinking of it like that. These things are, these processes and mindsets are unconscious often. Hadith Matharu. 
The sense that imperial nostalgia played a massive but largely unspoken role in Brexit also cropped up in another episode, with Byline Times writer Otto English talking about the national myths that underpinned the Leave campaign. Uniquely among the, the bigger countries of Europe, Britain hadn't had a revolution or been invaded or had to come to terms with itself in, in the last 200 years. So as winners, we never had to stare into our soul and question who we were in the same way that Germany did, or we had to come to terms with what had happened as France did to some extent after the Second World War. And fascinating to me is the fact that our propaganda from the Second World War became our Saturday afternoon entertainment. So if you grew up in the 70s, 80s, or even today, if you flick on the TV today, there are endless wartime or immediate post-wartime movies depicting essentially a propaganda image of Britain as this little nation standing against the might of the, the Nazi war machine. Uh, Dad's Army, too, I think has had a massive... <laughs> seems a bit bizarre to say that, uh, that a popular family sitcom might have a huge impact on the psyche of a nation. But at the beginning of Dad's Army, there's this moment where the Nazi swastika arrows push the little Union Jack back across the English Channel and then corner it and push in on it and pincer it out, uh, giving the impression that Britain really was just protected by Captain Mannering and, and his fellow sort of comedy stock characters. And it's a lot of nonsense, you know, because Britain in 1940 was a hugely powerful country that could put on vast reserves of men and machinery and power. And we were a very, very big and powerful country. We had this massive empire. Otto English. Another richly entertaining guest on the podcast was John Sweeney, whose conversation ranged from Putin to Trump to the BBC, and yes, Brexit. I'm a passionate Remainer. I believe very strongly in the European project. One of the great heroes of my life was this wonderful Irish SDLMP, Northern Irish SDLMP, SDL, SDLP, John Hume, who, uh, never mind, I can't uh, get the initials right, at Strasbourg in something like 1983, it was. He stood up in a bar and sang Danny Boy so beautifully. This is the guy who faced down the IRA. This is the guy who stood up to the British Army in the 70s. This is a guy who believed passionately in Irish nationalism through the ballot box, through democratic means. And he was a great hero and a great European. And I love that man. He, he died um, very recently. There were some lots of wonderful tributes to the man. The idea that uh, journalists don't like politicians, that's not true. There are some politicians who you meet and you think, you are f cool. And John Hume was one. Barbara Castle was another. Dennis Healy, who I never got to know properly, was a third. He'd been a beach master at Anzio. You know, and, and these are people who loved Europe, who Dennis Healy really, really learned German. He, he loved Germany, having fought 
Nazi Germany like a tiger when it was necessary. These are people who believe passionately in the European idea. And the distance between them and people like Nigel Farage, who did, who are far too young to have ever done anything in the war, because, you know, they're, they're just too young. I'm very, very proud of, of what Britain did during the Second World War. It was wonderful what my father did in his generation, my mum's generation. They were amazing. They were great. But they did it to save Europe. And they did it also, for example, things like the Special Operations Executive. It's a wonderful thing that Churchill set up, set Europe ablaze. These people, there are tons of people in it who lost their lives, were Europeans, who were striving for a, a, a better vision of, for our continent. Former BBC Panorama and Newsnight reporter John Sweeney there. Now alongside the politics, we've done our best to highlight human interest stories on the Byline Times podcast. We've investigated child abuse in Scottish football, a story I know you'll hear much more about in 2021. Dr Saria B shared an amazing story about getting a first class degree at Oxford and completing a PhD at Yale, despite being told by teachers at her inner city Birmingham school that she probably wouldn't get to university. And then there's Michelle Russell, who took part in an episode about NHS whistleblowers. Now, Michelle is a nurse who hasn't worked for five years after complaining about a male colleague who sexually harassed her. An independent inquiry upheld her complaint. So why isn't she back doing the job she loves? I'm not back at work because I haven't been supported back to work. And initially, the perpetrator was still actually working in my trust and had actually been promoted. So I would have been actually working more closely with him. The independent investigation had uncovered other cases of this man sexually harassing both my colleagues and members of the public and the trust knew about that during the investigation process. So I've been going through what I thought was a learning process for the trust and supporting them to do that learning, really. And unfortunately, we're at a point where the trust don't want me to share the outcome, really, of the investigation and the risk to public safety, which is the reason that you know, my biggest fear always through this was that he would hurt somebody else. And to have that confirmed was probably the worst part of this journey, really. So I've always wanted to ensure that, you know, any learning minimises potential harm to other people. So just so I'm clear about this, then, the trust would have been happy to have you back, but you want the report findings to be made public And that's the sticking point between you. Well, I haven't actually been supported back to work despite that being promised. So I haven't actually been at work for five years. That's quite a long time to be out of a workplace, particularly the trauma of being assaulted at work does make it very difficult. And I think I'd need some support for that to happen. And and although that has been promised it hasn't actually materialized so going back to work even now the perpetrator doesn't work for my employing trust but I I haven't been helped in that journey back to work so I mean it, it has obviously taken quite a toll on me and I can sound quite brave and together but you know 
it, it's quite limited in terms of me being safe inside my own home. It's going to be a very different story, I think, when I've got to face employment and workplace again. Michelle Russell, who is currently crowdfunding in an attempt to force her employer to an employment tribunal to help expose what she regards as a cover-up of sexual harassment in the NHS. Now, since its inception, Byline Times has been interested in the flow of dark money into the UK, the US and other Western democracies from Russia. Dark money being money whose original source is obscured. Some light was shone on it in July by the Russia report compiled by MPs on the Intelligence and Security Committee. Zarina Zabrisky, a former disinformation expert with Russia's successor to the KGB, the FSB, told me why she regarded Russia as a mafia state and why all money flowing into the UK from Russia has to be viewed as suspect. Yes, in here come two concepts that the Western audience is not familiar with and that is, again, critical to understand, to confront it. One is Krisha, and that could be translated as protection vaguely, and it has been defined really well in one of the trial of the High Court in London during one of the trials of the Russian Mafia, Risha literally means a roof, and that is a notion taken from the mafia, from the gangster street language from the 90s, and say, imagine there are um, people who are running kiosks selling cigarettes, and they are being targeted by the street gangsters. So in order to get protection or Krisha, this kiosk owner would go to, a, let's say, godfather, right? Who would be protecting all kiosks in this district. And this godfather would be the Krisha, right? So this is a notion known from, say, godfather or, or like Italy and things that we know about mafias in different countries. However, what's different in Russia is that Starting in the 90s, Krisha became political institution. So basically, the mayor's office of St. Petersburg was the Krisha, or the, the this protection apparatus, for all the gangsters, all the mafia members in St. Petersburg. And basically, what is known to people who, who read and write about it, that St. Petersburg basically took over the country because Putin, of course, is from St. Petersburg, and that's where I am from as well. So he moved to Moscow to become the president in 2000, and he took with him his close circle, and that Krisha became the protection for the whole mafia in the country of Russia. And you said there was another word as well. Yes, I'm getting to that because we're talking about the money. The way it works in Russia, I'm not sure if that works the same, say, with the Italian mafia. But the Russian mafia has what it's called abshak or collective money, collective bank. And that's where they pitch in and put their, their money, the, the, the percentage of their money in order to have this protection, in order to be in the structure. And basically in order to survive, because if you refuse to live by the rules of this 
the the whole organization, the whole mafia state. You would be simply eradicated. You would be murdered. That that it's not like you just won't be allowed to be a part of it. You won't be alive. Startling stuff there from Zarina Zabriskie. Now, the one major political event of the year we haven't mentioned so far was the election of Joe Biden as US president. In the aftermath of Donald Trump's bad-tempered ejection from the White House, Byline Times co-founder Peter Jukes was reminded of the final chapter of Lord of the Rings, called The Scouring of the Shire, when, despite an apparently conclusive victory, there was still a battle ahead. It was an observation he discussed with John Mitchinson, one of the founders of the Unbound Publishing House, in a conversation that somehow managed to bring together Brexit, Russian influence and that US election. This chapter at the end is that feeling the hobbits have destroyed the ring in Mount Doom, spoiler alerts for people who don't know the story, and they're on their way back home to the Shire, which is full of happy hobbits drinking beer, smoking tobacco. It's this vision of home and warmth, what the Welsh would call hireth. That's the thing that's been keeping them going through all of their sort of adventures in the terrifying adventures down in Mordor. And they get home and it's all been destroyed. Martial law is in place, run by men under the, the control of this guy, Sharky, who is obviously some kind of corrupt ruler, and just as they're expecting to relax and say, we're home again, aren't we heroes? They have to fight one last battle. And it is that feeling, I think, that you were pointing to, that the victory that morning anyway didn't feel quite complete with Trump contesting votes. We've still got Brexit here. So it does have a resonance for sure. I think the funny thing about these, these myths, obviously Tolkien had no idea of Brexit and Trump or Russian intervention back when he's writing it in the 30s and 40s. But, you know, it wasn't informed by war, wasn't he? Yeah, he, I mean, very much so. He fought in the Somme and he lost, I think, of, of his eight closest friends, he lost all but one of them. So he had a very, very, very traumatic experience. And I think some of the writing in Lord of the Rings while it's not directly about the war, you feel that sense of loss and desolation and of damage is definitely there. The First World War cast a very long shadow over the rest of his life. And indeed, that sense of when Frodo the Hobbit comes back and he confronts Sharky in this chapter that you love, The Scouring of the Shire, and he realises that Sharky is in fact Saruman, the once great wizard who's now just turned into this sort of corrupt goo, destroying his homeland. He, Saruman says, you'll never... I'd wish you, when he, very Christian moment, because he was also a Catholic uh, talking, he says, don't kill him, let him go. And he said, yeah, I despise you and your pity. And he said, I would wish you health and a long life, but I happen to know you won't have either. And indeed, that sense of Frodo being so damaged by his experiences, post-traumatic stress disorder, is another thing. We're all, we're all a little bit I think reeling around in post-traumatic stress, trying to make sense of the post-Trump world at the moment. So, yeah, like you say, these stories resonate, right? They sure do. John Mitchinson, who you can hear on Unbound's excellent backlisted podcast. There you go, then. Literature, politics and a reference to Dad's Army. My name's Adrian Goldberg and you've been listening to my Pick of the Year from the Byline Times podcast. There's a new episode every Thursday and you can listen to every back episode from your favourite podcast platform. This podcast is funded by people like you who subscribe to our regular monthly paper, 
the Byline Times, a snip at £36 a year. More info at bylinetimes.com. See you next week and Happy New Year.